Our current lesson includes three chapters from the Gospel of Luke, all very different from one another. In chapter 20, we encounter what is often called the Day of Questions, multiple attempts by the temple high priest, elders, scribes, and Sadducees to trap Jesus with their questions so they would have grounds to arrest him. In chapter 21, we examine Luke's apocalyptic writing, always a difficult area of scripture. Then, in the last of these three chapters, we find the beginning of Luke's passion account. In this lecture, we'll take a look at each of these three chapters somewhat independently. Though each of the three is rather unique, we must remain aware that they all fit neatly into Luke's two-volume work, Luke and Acts. We must never lose sight of Luke's overall themes and purpose. In fact, within these chapters, we see several of Luke's themes or literary motifs being fleshed out. In his introductory remarks in our commentary, Michael Patella mentions that one of Luke's motifs is the idea of the great reversal. This is a term used to describe the reversal in fortune that will come about for all between now and the end times. This theme is introduced in the first chapter of Luke with the beautiful words of the Canticle of Mary, also known as the Magnificat. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. It is continued in the blessings and woes of the Sermon on the Plain, found in chapter 6. In this lesson, we see the great reversal further expanded in Jesus' instruction to his disciples, telling them, Let the greatest among you be like the youngest, and the leader as the servant. And we encounter the beginning of the greatest reversal of all, the Passion, in these chapters as well. As we know from our commentary, Luke is working at another level as well, that of the epic and cosmic battle that is taking place between Christ and Satan. This theme is introduced by Luke in chapter 4 of the Gospel, during the temptation scenes in the desert. In the last verse of that encounter, Luke points to the coming battle with these words of foreboding. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. In this lesson's chapters, we read that Satan's time has arrived. Like nowhere else in any of the Gospels, Satan is portrayed actively at work in Luke's Passion of Jesus, actually entering into Judas Iscariot. Further, Jesus warns that Satan will tempt the remaining apostles, though they will be strengthened by Peter through the prayer of Jesus. And then, at the time of his arrest, Jesus says that the hour of his arrest is the time for the power of darkness. So, just as this epic battle begins, it is quickly won by Christ for all humanity through the acceptance of his Father's will, his suffering, death, and resurrection. Another theme that is intertwined throughout this gospel is that of schism. Luke tells us that Christ will come to us all, but not everyone will respond to his call to discipleship. Some will reject him. This theme is apparent throughout the day of questioning, but is found most vividly in the parable of the tenant farmers. We also see the theme presented in Jesus' warning of the coming persecution and, of course, in the Passion itself. So, with an understanding as to how these chapters fit into Luke's volume of work, we now turn our attention to the individual chapters. As we take a look at the Day of Questions, we would do well to remember the events that took place just before this scene begins. Jesus has just made a triumphant entry into Jerusalem to shouts of, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. After he enters the holy city, he goes to the temple and cleanses it, driving out the merchants. Quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah, 
Jesus accuses the high priests and temple officials of turning the temple into a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer. Chapter 20 begins with the words, One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple. This phrasing implies that some time has passed between the cleansing of the temple and the day of questions. We can be certain that Jesus spent this time not just teaching, but teaching with his own independent authority, not like the scribes who taught only with the authority of accepted rabbinic teachings. How could Jesus cleanse the temple, rebuke the high priest, and teach in the temple without authority? The answer, of course, is that he could not. It should come as no surprise then that the chief priests, scribes, and elders would question Jesus as to where he got the authority to cleanse the temple and teach there. After all, they were the only human authorities who could give Jesus permission to teach in the temple. Just who do you think you are, they might have said in today's lingo. I am the Messiah, the Son of God, they wanted him to answer, because that would be blasphemy, and they could arrest him and put him to death. His teachings were disruptive. They were stirring up the people and making their own lives a bit uncomfortable. Tell us you are the Son of God and our troubles will be over, they thought. But the replies of Jesus avoid the traps they set for him. His responses may seem odd to us, answering a question with a question, but it is consistent with the style and form of rabbinic debate common to the times. The questions Jesus asks and the replies he gives back his questioners into a corner. Jesus wins each debate by meeting each group on their own ground and undermining their own authority. The Sadducees, for example, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead and believed that the Torah, and only the Torah, was authoritative scripture. They asked their questions based on the premise that if there were a resurrected life, it would be a simple continuation of this life. Jesus not only corrects their misunderstanding of what the resurrected life will be like, he uses the Torah, their authority, to answer them. Likewise, when Jesus questions his opponents about how the Messiah can be both David's son and David's Lord, their inability to respond causes them to lose standing and authority among the people because they don't understand the scriptures as well as Jesus. The popular title of the Messiah was Son of David. While it may seem as if Jesus is trying to cast doubt on the validity of that title, he is actually saying the Messiah is far more than the Son of David, far more than a political king. He was trying to help them see that the Messiah was to be the Lord of the hearts and lives of all believers. The individual point made in each of these debates between Jesus and his opponents are made fully and forcefully by looking at them all together. The issue, ultimately, pits the messianic expectations and religious concerns of the Jewish leaders against the good news of the kingdom of God, as proclaimed by Jesus. While the law and the Jerusalem temple would be occasions for opposition to Jesus by Israel's religious authorities, the true stumbling block for them, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church states it, was Jesus' role in the redemption of sins. Of all the questions asked of Jesus in this chapter, one generates the most discussion and commentary in the literature. Is it lawful for us to pay tribute to Caesar or not? This increased attention probably reflects some of our own feelings about taxation, but I believe it is also because we can easily see what a clever response Jesus gives. For the Jew at the time of Jesus, the tribute tax was not so much a financial burden as it was a religious burden. 
As our commentary points out, it was unpleasant to have to pay a tax to an occupying government, but it was the necessity of handling a pagan idol or image while doing so, a violation of the Jewish code of law, which they found most offensive. This was no small debate at the time. In fact, non-payment of taxes to Rome eventually became one of the focal points for the first Jewish revolt that led to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus' response, show me a denarius, whose image and name does it bear, exposes his opponent's hypocrisy through their possession and use of the coin. But he's not done yet. His next remark, then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God can be seen as a judgment against their failure to give God his due honor. Once again, Jesus has undermined their authority and status among the people. As our commentary points out, this passage should not be interpreted as a scriptural basis for the separation of church and state, or for that matter, even the separation of religious from secular issues. We might, in fact, easily reach the opposite conclusion. Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us, the earth is the Lord's and all it holds. All things then are owed to God. Not just the earth and all it holds belong to God, but as Psalm 24 continues, the world and those who live there. We are made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, we belong to God. As faithful Christians, all that we do should give glory and honor to God. Therefore, our actions in the secular world must be focused on God. Luke Timothy Johnson, writing in Sacra Pagina Luke, says this about these verses. Allegiance to God is not on the same plane as political allegiance. Caesar may call himself Augustus and issue a coin with that on it, but letting him have that coin back does not mean we recognize the claim, only that we allow the idolatrous circle to close. Allegiance to God has the demand of absolute devotion of the mind, the heart, and the strength. William Barclay, writing in his interpretation and commentary on the Gospel of Luke, further defines the role of a faithful Christian in society. He states that if a person lives under a particular government and enjoys its privileges, they cannot separate themselves from it. In fact, a Christian should be the most concerned and reliable of citizens and take part in the government. He points out, however, that the voice of conscience is louder than the voice of any man-made laws. The Christian must be, at once, both the servant and the conscience of the government. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church phrases it, citizens are obliged in conscience not to follow the directives of civil authorities when they are contrary to the demands of the moral order. We must obey God rather than men. As I mentioned earlier, apocalyptic writing can be very difficult to interpret and understand. A proper Catholic approach to apocalyptic scripture requires us to refuse to contemplate whether Jesus' words will come to their completion in our times. Instead, we must continue to seek Luke's purpose for including this material within the gospel. From this perspective, it is clear that Luke portrays Jesus as a prophet. Now, most of the time when we consider the word prophet, we are quick to point out that its scriptural meaning is that of spokesperson, rather than one who predicts future events. In this case, however, Luke intends both meanings. An authentic prophet was highly esteemed in the Mediterranean world at the time of Christ. When the accuracy of a prophet was proven, his authenticity was established. 
if among Luke's readers, any of Jesus' prophecies were already known to be true, trust in his word about what was still to happen would increase. That is the real significance of the first two stages of this section. The reader of Luke-Acts would already be aware that the events of the first and second stage of Jesus' prophecies had already come to pass, just as he said they would. Therefore, the reader can believe with confidence what Jesus says about the true eschatological event, the coming of the Son of Man, which is yet to occur. Significantly, verses 25 through 38 contain no clue or reference as to when the coming of the Son of Man will occur. The time of final judgment is left completely undetermined and is separate from the events prophesied earlier in the chapter. The parable of the fig tree simply tells the reader that the signs that will accompany the end times will be as obvious as the coming of spring. As a Christian in the 21st century, we take away the same message from this passage as the Christian in the late 1st century, that is, to have confidence that Jesus' words will not pass away unfulfilled. In the meantime, we are to stay awake, remain watchful, and pray for the strength to endure, and know that we won't face the trial alone. Luke's narrative of the Passion begins in chapter 22. Our familiarity with the story can sometimes be a distraction when studying certain scriptures like the account of the Passion. After all, we participate in the dramatic reading of the Passion on Palm Sunday and Good Friday each year. The story has been told theatrically and on film countless times, and of course, it is the source and identity of our faith. Our comfort with the story may cause us to overlook subtle details which could lead to a deeper appreciation of the passage. One such example is Jesus' prayer for Peter and his commission to strengthen the other's faith. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed that your own faith may not fail, and once you have turned back, you must strengthen your brothers. These two short verses are found in the middle of the Last Supper narrative, and just before the prediction of Peter's denial of Jesus. These words foretell the prominence of Peter as a leader in the early church, as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, and fortifies our Catholic belief in his preeminent role among the Twelve. Familiarity is also a problem in our consideration of the Last Supper. As Catholics, it is very easy to focus our thoughts and reflections on the sacramental nature of the meal. In doing so, we risk missing out on many rich nuances of the story. Through our knowledge of the Last Supper, we know the meal takes place on the Jewish feast of the Passover. Now, the Passover is not just a memorial of Israel's flight out of Egypt. It recalls that God established a new covenant with His people, which was sealed by sacrificial blood. Jesus transforms the Last Supper into the memorial of His voluntary offering to the Father for our salvation. A new covenant is made in His death, not with animal sacrifices, but with His own blood. While we may recognize the historical and theological relationship between the Passover and the Last Supper, Luke takes nothing for granted with his readers. He mentions the Feast of the Passover, or Unleavened Bread, six times in the 13-verse introduction to his account of the meal. The Last Supper was indeed the last meal that Jesus shared with his apostles and disciples before his death, but it was also the last in a series of meals with Jesus, as reported in Luke. The significance of joining together for a meal has largely been lost on our culture except for special occasions. But in Jewish society at the time of Jesus, meals were very important and said quite a bit about one's social standing and religious fidelity. 
There were rules which safeguarded the integrity of the faithful Jewish community. Eating with those who were considered to be sinners was improper for a faithful Jew and amounted to apostasy. Jesus, however, often ate with outcasts, such as Levi and Zacchaeus and the sinful woman at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Because of such meals, Jesus became known as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Abbot Jerome Codell, in his book, The Eucharist in the New Testament, states that Luke makes these meals a major theme of his gospel, portraying Jesus as the prophet whose pattern of eating and drinking with sinners is an acted parable proclaiming God's offer of life to all. The table becomes a place where human need meets divine grace. With this in mind, we see that the Last Supper is also a meal shared by sinners in need of His mercy and forgiveness. In case we have forgotten that the apostles and disciples are indeed sinners, Luke tells us of the acts of betrayal, pride, quarreling, and denial which take place during the meal itself. The Eucharist that Christ institutes in the Last Supper to be a memorial of His sacrifice is still, to this day, a meal hosted by Jesus for sinners, such as you and I, in need of His forgiveness. When we come to Mass to celebrate the Eucharist, we would do well to remember this humbling detail of the Paschal Feast. Mm-hmm.